Acts chapter 13, and we're going to be taking a look today, actually we're going to begin with the very last verse of chapter 12, verse 25, and we'll be reading through verse 12 of chapter 13, and uh, we're making our way through the book of Acts, and I hope that it's been a profitable study for you, it's been, I think, so for me, Um, you always learn a great deal more when you're actually preparing a message than when you're hearing one, Um, and uh, I never cease to be amazed at, at the marvelous things that God does um, in making his gospel known. And it's not only true in these early days in the book of Acts, as it's recorded for us by Luke, but also throughout history. And one of the best things that a Christian can do, I think, to really be encouraged about how God, has, how God is working is to, to do some reading in church history and to see God's providential acts through history in nations and in different communities and with different individuals um, and, and just see um, God's heart, if you will, in terms of bringing more and more people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is what we find here um, in the book of Acts in these early days of the church. Uh, we pick up Luke's narrative in verse 25 of chapter 12, the, the last verse of the chapter. And he tells us there that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. And the alert reader will remember that at the end of chapter 11, it spoke about this service that Barnabas and Paul had gone on. Perhaps you remember that a certain prophet named Agabus had said through the Holy Spirit that there would be a great famine over that region of the world that would hit the believers in Judea especially hard. And so it says at the end of chapter 11 that the disciples determined to send relief, and they did so, sending it to the elders Uh, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul take the relief, take the money and other goods that may have been provided from the church in Antioch far to the north of Jerusalem, bring this gift to the saints in Jerusalem, uh, in Judea. And while they're there, apparently the events of chapter 12 take place. And recall what took place in chapter 12. We find the beheading of the apostle James and the miraculous rescue of Peter from prison. And now, once they have completed this service, they return to Antioch, bringing, it says, with them Mark, or I'm sorry, John, whose other name was Mark. So they've completed their service, they're going back to Antioch, and they take this other man, John Mark, with them. Now, it seems um, that this mention of John Mark is made because of uh, what will take place uh, later in the book. This is just a little detail that you wonder, well, why is this even mentioned? It's really to set up what's going to be mentioned later, that Barnabas and Paul are going to have a falling out. They're going to have a disagreement that centers on John Mark. And so Luke is telling us here how John Mark uh, became associated with with Paul and Barnabas. Now, the importance of chapter 13 lies in the fact that it records the beginning of the mission to the Gentiles. We've talked a lot about this, how in the book of Acts, we see the gradual expansion, uh, expansion of the kingdom of heaven. We see a process of transformation of the people of God from being exclusively Jewish in orientation throughout much of redemptive history to becoming more and more inclusive of people from other backgrounds. And this was always God's intention, to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth through a particular people whom he called unto himself. That would be the descendants of Abraham. Through them, God sent the Messiah, and through the Messiah... Um, The apostles would go forth and other believers would go forth and the gospel would spread to more and more people. And so we find in the book of Acts that the gospel expands geographically, beginning in Jerusalem, outward towards Judea and Samaria. 
and now it goes to regions far from the Holy Land. Um, and then it also expi- expands religiously and ethnically as well, from Jew to half-Jew to non-Jew, or as we have mentioned before, from Jew to Samaritan to Gentile. So Peter was the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, as we saw in chapter 10. He did so to the household of Cornelius. Others came to share the gospel with Gentiles as well. Um, And this took place in the city of Antioch. And remember that this is the city, or this is the church, the church in Antioch that becomes kind of the mission-oriented church of the New Testament. And we've mentioned before that there are a number of churches in the modern world that incorporate the name Antioch in their name, like Antioch Baptist Church or Antioch Missionary Church. Um, And oftentimes when they're incorporating the term Antioch in the name of their church, they're emphasizing the fact that they're very concerned about missions because of the pattern and the example that the church in Antioch did in the first, late in the first century. So uh, people are beginning to preach the gospel to the Gentiles once it began to be clear that this was what God wanted. Um, And so Barnabas and Saul are sent out to get the Goyim. The Goyim, Goyim is a Yiddish word for Gentiles. And I wanted to have an alliterative title to for my message. Going, going to get the Goyim. Okay, that's a tongue twister. Let's try to say that five times quickly. All right, so as we mentioned before, the first 12 chapters follow the ministry of Peter. As he ministers for the most part among the Jews, Paul describes him as the apostle, apostle to the uncircumcision or the apostle to the Jews. Although he plays an instrumental role, as we've seen, in introducing the gospel both to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. And then now in chapters 13 through 28, the end of the book, uh, we follow the ministry of Paul as he fulfills his role as the apostle to the Gentiles. We read the account of Saul's conversion in chapter 9, where Jesus tells him that he's called to bear his name before the Gentiles which is a kind of general calling. He, he tells Paul that this is, what, this is the calling I have for you. This is the mission I have for you. And then in this chapter, we read of a more specific calling, a calling to a particular missionary enterprise. And as we'll see, the first of, this is the first of three missionary journeys the Apostle Paul will go on in the book of Acts. It occupies chapters 13 and 14. It begins either in the year 46 or 47 A.D., So 17, 18 years after the resurrection of Christ, and it lasts about a year and a half. So the chapter begins by telling us that there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers. Prophets are those who are specially called upon by God to receive divine revelations. Uh, Prophets are people to whom God speaks by dream or vision or maybe verbally and then The prophet tells us what God has said. They're the conduits, if you will, of God's revelations to human beings. Teachers, on the other hand, are those who are called to explain revelations that have already been given. In other words, they're called upon to expound, to explain, to teach the scriptures. I am no prophet, but I am a preacher and a teacher. I take revelations that have been given to the prophets, recorded in the scriptures, and seek to explain them. Um, so we have a better understanding of them for the purpose of having greater faith and trust in God and living a life that is honoring to God. Now, these offices of prophet and teacher are mentioned together several times in the New Testament. Uh, among those called to these offices in the church at Antioch are several who are named here in verse 1. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, 
Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, first mentions Barnabas. Barnabas we've already encountered um, in the book of Acts. We first were introduced to him in chapter 4 in verse 36, where we learned that he was a Levite. In other words, he was from the priestly tribe. Not a priest per se, but he was of the tribe that the priests came from. Kind of an, an assistant priest, if you will. And we also learned that he was from the island of Cyprus. So he was a Jew living in the diaspora, that is, Jewish community outside the Holy Land. The Jews made much of the land. They didn't even have to use the word holy. They would just mention the land, and every Jew knew what land they were talking about. The land to whom God promised, uh, the land that God promised to Abraham uh, to be in his possession and possession of his descendants forever. But there were many Jews, either through voluntary migrations or more frequently because of of enemy incursions into the land and conquest who were taken away captive in other lands, or maybe they fled invasions in other places. And so there were Jews all throughout the Roman Empire during this time. And there's a very large Jewish population um, in Antioch, and there were quite a few Jews also on the island of Cyprus. And this is where Barnabas is from. Um, And being from Cyprus, he was no doubt well acquainted with Greek culture. Another prophet or teacher that's mentioned here is a man by the name of Simeon, and he was called Niger, it says. And the word Niger simply means black. Now, some people have said, well, he was probably called Niger because of his black hair, but black hair is kind of the norm in that part of the world, and so I think it has to have been some other reason why he was called Niger, most likely because he was of African descent. He was a black man, but he was a believer. Had he been a proselyte to the Jewish faith first, like the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he became a Christian, or did he become a Christian out of pure paganism, as it were? We don't know. But he was a man who was of African descent. The next man is a man by the name of Lucius of Cyrene. Now we're told in chapter 11 that there were men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Gentiles there soon after Peter had done so to to Cornelius. And so it's very likely that Barnabas from Cyprus, Lucius of Cyrene, were among those mentioned as being active in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Lucius is a Latin name, by the way, which indicates um, affiliation, if not ethnic identity, with the Romans. Now, some people have thought that maybe this is Luke, because Luke bears a resemblance to Lucian, but there's no good reason to believe that this is the case. In fact, Lucian is a, or Lucius rather, is a Latin name, whereas Luke's name is more Greek. Now, Menaean is the next man. This is the Hellenized form of the Hebrew Menachem. Remember Menachem Begin, uh, Israeli prime minister back in the 1970s, early 80s? That's what this name is. Menaean is the Greek form of Menachem. And it says that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, And this would be Herod Antipas, the uncle of that Herod that we mentioned in chapter 12, the one who executed James and who met a a very miserable death at the end of that chapter. And he had uh, regions in the north, the north north and east of Galilee that uh, he reigned over. Now, think about this, thinking about all these different people. And I give you this brief bio on each one and what we can know about each one for a purpose. Not simply to satisfy our curiosity, but simply to show that we see in this group of names, in this group of men, a microcosm of what historically has been called the Catholic Church, Catholic with a small c, Catholic meaning universal, 
of the church that is a part and finds expression in different nations among various peoples, but all confessing the same Christ and believing the same gospel. Here in the church of Antioch, we find a microcosm of the Catholic church, uh, transcending different racial, cultural, linguistic, and socioeconomic backgrounds. And not only are they all in the same church, they're all in positions of leadership, prophets, and teachers. When Paul discusses the offices of the church and the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he makes the point that all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And notice here then that the Holy Spirit is making no distinction between people, whether it's a man of African descent, whether it's a uh, Hellenized Jew from Cyprus, whether it's a Roman, a uh, person of Roman orientation. The Holy Spirit is making no distinction in, a, in appropriating or apportioning these gifts and these offices. Again, this is one more way in which Luke is showing us the, the globalization, if you, were, if you will, of, of the church as the gospel is progressing. Now, it says in verse 2 that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, the Spirit spoke through one of the prophets gathered there and seems to refer to a prior revelation that was made concerning Barnabas and Saul. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The verb there is in the perfect tense, which denotes an action that has taken place in the past, but it has an ongoing effect or an ongoing result. My guess is that the Spirit had revealed this call to Barnabas or Saul or both of them, and perhaps by a dream or a vision, um, he had informed, the Spirit had informed them of what he wanted them to do issued them this specific missionary call. Um, we know by a later, uh, was later written in the book of Acts that the Spirit sometimes did this, guiding Paul in where he was to go, where he was to preach the gospel. And now, by way of confirming the call, the Spirit reveals it to the larger group through one of the prophets. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work, or for the work to which I have already in the past called them. All right, so we'll see that the work to which the Spirit called Barnabas and Saul was to undertake a missionary journey in order to preach Christ in Gentile lands where he had as yet not been preached. And it says in verse 3 that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off through fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer, we find this a number of times in the Bible when there was some great... Um, an urgent matter that people wish to lay before the Lord. It was oftentimes deemed not sufficient merely to pray, but to enforce that prayer with fasting. And this accompanies the setting apart of Barnabas and Paul, or Saul as he's called here, and then they're commissioned through the laying on of hands, which is a common thing that we find in Scripture when anybody was set aside or set apart for a particular mission or calling. Now verses... 4 through 12 record the first stop on their missionary journey, and it is the island of Cyprus, tucked up in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. It lies about 50 miles south of Turkey and about 60 miles west of Syria. Um, at almost 3,600 square miles, it's the third largest island in the Mediterranean, after Sicily and Sardinia. 
It's about 110 miles east to west and about 45 miles north to south at its widest point. And it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which is a port city on the mainland near Antioch. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. All right, now not having just one screen, we're all looking at the same spot. I can't really point it out with my laser pointer here. But you can see from the upper right hand down to the island of Cyprus is is where they're traveling. Um, But notice here that it says that uh, how, how Luke describes or emphasizes the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. It says, speak, uh, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit called them, apparently speaking to them, revealing to them what he wanted them to do. Then the Holy Spirit speaking to one of the prophets in the whole company of the leadership in the church at Antioch. And when all of this is done and they are sent off, it's all viewed as if this is a work of the Holy Spirit, being set off or sent off by the Spirit. And this Luke mentions a number of times throughout the book, the Holy Spirit's role in guiding and directing the efforts of the apostles in preaching the gospel. We, have, we find a great example of this in chapter 16 that I'd like to point out to you. Chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Here, this is a second missionary journey that Paul was on, and he is um, on the western shore of the modern-day country of Turkey at this point, or, or near there, at least, heading in that direction. But in chapter 16, in verse 6, it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, when it mentions Asia, it doesn't mean the whole continent like we think of it today, but a particular region of what is presently the country of Turkey. But notice this, it says the Holy Spirit had forbidden them to speak the word there. Now, why why was that? Because he wanted them to go to a different place. Verse 7, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Verse 8, So speaking, or passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, which is on the coast. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go, uh, go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now the thing that I think is fascinating here is how the Holy Spirit, at every point of decision of whether to go here or to go there, the Holy Spirit is leading them. He's saying, don't go there, don't go there, but go here. The Holy Spirit is very active in all of this, and the end result of it is the, Holy, the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit um, as people come to believe. All right, so that's uh, um, what's happening here, essentially, in chapter 13, as the Holy Spirit is sending uh, Barnabas and Saul out to preach. So they arrive on the island of Cyprus. Now, wait a minute, Cyprus. We discussed that earlier in connection with Barnabas. Remember, that's where Barnabas is from. Perhaps this is why they seek first to go to Cyprus, or rather why the Holy Spirit sent them there. They go to Cyprus, Barnabas' hometown. And could it be, you remember, you remember the, the Gadarene demoniac, Jesus and the Gadarene demoniac? It says he was filled with a legion of demons, and Jesus cast out the demons, and, 
Afterwards, the man is so thankful to Jesus and he wants to accompany Jesus wherever he goes. And what is Jesus' admonition to him? He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go tell your family. Go tell those within your own orbit, as it were. Go be a faithful witness to them. Our first obligation in sharing the gospel is to do so with our own family and within our own circle. You might recall that in his first letter to Timothy, Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now he says this about material things, providing material things. But if it's true with material things, how much more is it true of spiritual things? If we have tasted of the grace of God, have tasted of the grace of salvation, woe unto us if we don't share that with those who are closest to us. In fact, John says something similar to this again with connection with material things. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And can we not also ask, if anyone has tasted the grace of God through Jesus Christ and sees his brother without the gospel and neglects to share it with him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now Saul had already been back to Tarsus, his hometown, after his conversion. He had seen his family and friends, and no doubt he told them about Christ. We don't know whether Barnabas had returned to Cyprus after he came to believe in Christ, but he does go there now. And no doubt he was very eager to share all that he knew about Christ with his family and friends from there. So the two of them were set apart, and they're sent out by the Holy Spirit, who guided them in their journeys. But perhaps this also coincided with Barnabas' desire to go and speak to his family about Christ. So sailing to Cyprus um, is perhaps part, that's part of the motivation, but also it's a, a strategic move in terms of where they head afterwards because they go to the major cities of Galatia in the interior of what is now the country of Turkey. And being a Levite, Barnabas was a man of some influence and probably uh, had some important personal connections still on the island of Cyprus. So all of these things were working together to be a very fitting place for them to go first. Now it says, when they arrived at Salamis, I'm in verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's why he was mentioned earlier, John Mark, um, accompanied Paul and Barnabas from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and now that Barnabas and Saul are sent out by the Holy Spirit, they have taken John Mark, and probably some others as well, with them to be their assistants in this missionary enterprise. So they land on the island of Cyprus at the port of Salamis, at the eastern end of the island, about 130 miles off the coast, and they immediately begin to proclaim the word of God in all the synagogues of the island. Now, wait a minute. Isn't Paul, isn't he the, the apostle to the Gentiles? What's he doing speaking in the synagogues to the Jews? Well, obviously, he's a Jew, and so is Barnabas, and God had made these promises to the Jews, and so it was only fitting that the Jews should hear the gospel first, that they should hear of the fulfillment of the promises that had been made to their ancestors so many centuries ago. In fact, Paul would say a couple of times in the book of Romans, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. And so they go into the synagogues. It's an appropriate thing to do, but it's also a strategic thing to do. 
because they have a personal connection with other Jews. And in the, in the synagogues, you would find not only Jews, but God-fearing Gentiles who would be there. And through them, other Gentiles, raw pagan Gentiles, if you will. So they go to the Jews first. It's both in fulfillment of the promises to the fathers and also a strategic move as well. Now, almost as an afterthought, um, again, well, well, we'll we'll save that for next week because no need to introduce it now. All right. So when it's, it says there in verse six, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. Okay. Now this name Bar Jesus means the son of Jesus. Um, but don't be too confused or troubled by that because Jesus was a very common Jewish name in the first century. It actually um, is a form of the, the, the name Joshua. Um, it was the contemporary form of Joshua. And so it was a very common name. It would be like um, um, Bill today or Mark or uh, you don't find too many Dougs today. Uh, Jim, John. There we go. It's be like John in English. You know, very common English male name. Jesus was a very common Jewish name in the first century. In Josephus' writings, the Jewish historian of the first century, he mentions a number of people named Jesus. Again, it's just the name Joshua. And uh, Luke refers to this man as a magician. Uh, despite the prohibition and very strict prohibition it was in the Torah against the practice of sorcery and magic and witchcraft and divination and all of these things, there were many Jews who were actually known in the first century for their practice of magic, and here is one of them. He, Luke also refers to him as a false prophet. So he claimed to speak for God. Remember our definition earlier that a prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of God under divine inspiration. I hear you. I hear you. I'll, I'll wrap it up soon. Be patient. <laughs> the blessings of grandchildren. Love it. All right, so, so he's a magician and he is a false prophet. And no doubt he practiced magic in order to bolster his claim of being a prophet. And it appears that he had considerable influence with the provincial authority, as we'll see. It says in verse 7 that he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. A proconsul was the highest ranking Roman official within a province, um, within a senatorial province. Some provinces were governed by the emperor through men that they appointed, or others by the senate uh, through a governor that they appointed. And proconsul uh, was appointed by the Roman senate. Luke tells us that he was a man of intelligence, and that he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. It appears that a report comes to him that a couple of prominent teachers have come to town. They want, he wants to hear them. He's an inquisitive and a curious man, intelligent. He wants to hear what they have to say. Verse 8 says, But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So here we have this magician, false prophet, has some influence with the proconsul, and he doesn't like the fact that the proconsul is taking an interest in the things that Paul and Barnabas are saying. He seems to have enjoyed some clout with the proconsul and probably benefited as a counselor. And he's thinking, you know, maybe my days are numbered here if I don't turn the proconsul away from these two. So now it's not stated how he opposed Paul and Barnabas or how he sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith, but my opinion is that he probably 
under the pretense of being a prophet, was denouncing what they had to say. Saying, thus saith the Lord, these men, you know, are perverting the way of the Lord, or they have no knowledge of, of the Lord's ways, but using their, his, their, his uh, pretense of being a prophet and turning them away, uh, turning him away from what Paul and Barnabas have to say, denouncing the Christian message. But listen to what Paul says in return. But Saul, who is also called Paul, and this is the first time he's called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, at the false prophet, and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now this is a pretty stern warning from the Apostle Paul. Some people uh, today, and even many Christians, might accuse Paul of not being very Christ-like in saying this. But I want you to note that it says, being filled with the Holy Spirit, he said these things. So it wasn't just um, some sinful impulse of his own flesh uh, that responds in anger here towards this false prophet, but he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to feel this righteous indignation and to say precisely these things. But some today would say, well, he called Elamis names. That's not very nice. His rhetoric was divisive. He wasn't being very kind. And some people seem to think that Christian ethics can be summed up in the word nice. Just be nice, that's all. You know, that's, that's the sum total of what it means to be a Christian. Just be nice. I heard our friend Steve Schlissel years and years ago preach a sermon called Niceanity, in which he made just this point. Christianity in the modern version of things is basically be nice. Be nice to your neighbor, and that's all that it means to be a Christian. Well, we are to be nice. I mean, we're to be cordial, we're to be friendly, but there are times and there are occasions in which we have to speak very sternly, in which the truth has to be stated, always in love, that is with a loving motivation, but that doesn't always necessarily mean that it's all sweetness and syrupy, right? Sometimes it has to be stated very directly, and it's stated very directly here. And when Paul says what he says here, he's simply following in the footsteps of his master, Jesus could be rather bold at times and rather direct. Remember the time when he said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape the wrath to come? Some people, I suppose, might accuse Jesus of not being very (laughs) Christ-like in speaking this way. What about the time when he called the scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs that outwardly appear beautiful but inwardly are filled with dead men's bones and all corruption? Or when he looked them square in the face and said, you hypocrites, and issued several denunciations of that sort, one after the other. Or when he referred to some men as dogs and swine in Matthew chapter 7. Again, there are times when evil must be called out in the strongest terms possible. And that's what Paul is doing here. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then he goes on to say this. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, it says, a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now this was a a very powerful and fearful sign that it was Paul and Barnabas who spoke for the Lord and not Elymas. Right, Elymas condemns and denounces them, and nothing happens to them. Paul denounces him 
and he goes blind for a time. And it says the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, you know, most of the miracles in the New Testament are miracles of restoration, miracles of healing, of deliverance, of salvation. The blind are made to see, the deaf to hear, the lame are made to walk, and the dead to live again. But there are a few miracles of judgment recorded in the scriptures as well, and this is one of them. You might remember another earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They were struck by a judgment of the Lord, but it wasn't merely blindness, it was death. They had lied to God in front of the apostles and made a bold claim of it, and God struck them. What happens here to Elymas mirrors what happened to Paul. Remember that he too was struck blind for a time in Acts chapter 9. In both cases, the form of the judgment was symbolic. Elymas claimed to be, what? A prophet. Another name for a prophet is a seer. Prophets see things that other people don't see. They are given dreams and visions that reveal the will of God. Here he is claiming to be a seer, but he is struck blind. God is, is hitting him right at the midst of his basic claim to show that he's no prophet at all. Now, I would like to think that like Paul, Elymas learned a lesson and became a follower of Jesus. The result of it for Paul was he came to believe and he was called to the apostolic office. And I would like to think that something like this happened also with Elymas, but we learn nothing more of what became of him, and I suspect that this is because, there, because he did not respond, he did not believe. Now, Paul was marvelously vindicated in all of this because he who opposed, because he who opposed him was himself opposed by God. God was taking sides between these two men who presented themselves as speaking for the Lord, exalting one and demoting the other. And this made his preaching all the more compelling, so much so that Sergius Paulus believed. Now, do you remember that Jesus had told Ananias of Damascus um, about Saul's conversion? He said, I'm going to send you to a man and find him in such a place. He's seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming, laying his hands upon him, that he might receive his sight, and that he might be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember that episode in Acts chapter 9? And in that conversation that Jesus has with Ananias, he says, for he will bear witness to me before the Gentiles and before kings. And this title of kings was used by the Jews of the period with some latitude to mean not only those who are technically having that title, but anyone of a high-ranking position. And we find this being fulfilled right here for the first time with Paul. He is speaking to a quote-unquote king, not a technical title for Sergius Paulus. But being the Roman governor of the province, that's how he would be viewed by the Jews. Any high-ranking official had supreme authority would be considered a king. And so here Paul is, is having his first opportunity for, to fulfill this statement that the Lord had given to him. He's preaching for a proconsul, the governor of a Roman province. And by the blessing of God, this official comes to believe. Now, we often say, as we should, the gospel is for everyone. And usually when we say this, the emphasis is on those who are down and out, on those who are marginalized, to those who are poor and needy. Jesus even points to his ministry to the poor as an evidence of his claim to be the Messiah. Do you remember when John the Baptist, languishing in prison, has his doubts? And he sends two of his disciples 
to Jesus to ask, are you the one that we've been expecting? Are you the one to come or should we look for somebody else? And it's interesting that Jesus didn't just say, I'm the one. He gave them signs to report back to John. He said, go and tell John this, that the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, demons are cast out, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. I think that is so beautiful because the poor are so often overlooked by regular folk and by those who think of themselves as being high and mighty. There's a, there's a tenderness in the mind of God to those who are disenfranchised. The, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the outcast, the needy, those who are so marginalized in society. And we often emphasize that, and as we should. But it's also true that God is sometimes pleased to call those who are of high rank. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, writing to the Corinthians, Paul says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were, according to worldly standards, powerful or of noble birth or wise according to the standards of the world. He says, not many. But he means in this that there are some. Right? We have reason to thank God that a, that a Joseph of Arimathea, a ranking member of the Sanhedrin, um, and, and not only him, but Nicodemus, another member of the Sanhedrin, came to believe they were secret disciples of the Lord, even in that high position. There were those Roman centurions, not terribly high in the pecking order of the Roman world, but higher than the average man, who came to believe in him. Even the man to whom Luke is addressing these two volumes of the Gospel and the Book of Acts was a high-ranking official. Luke addresses him as the most excellent Theophilus, which is a formal title for somebody of a high rank. Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians that there were some, even in Caesar's own household, who were numbered among the saints. And here we also find a provincial governor brought by the grace of God to believe in Christ. So when we say that the gospel is for everyone, we really mean it. It is for the poor and the needy and the outcast, but it is also for the high and mighty, and those who are humble enough to receive it of whatever class they may be, and again, from whatever background. And all of this is being... All of this is being told in the story that Luke gives us in the book of Acts. Now, our hope would be that people from every socioeconomic class, from every ethnic background, from every language, and from every position um, in society would come to believe. Too little do we pray, perhaps, and too little do we believe, perhaps, that those who are high, those who are noble, noble birth, noble standing, that they will come to believe. But do you believe that the gospel is just as powerful to reach the hearts of kings and rulers as it is to reach uh, the homeless person? I believe that it is. I believe we should pray and we should labor to both ends and everything in between. Nobody should be outside the reach of our efforts uh, to, to preach the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you that this is true, that your grace and your mercy and compassion overflow even to the least of these and to the greatest of these. And our Father, we are thankful that throughout history there have been so many of uh, those who are the lower classes of society who have believed, but also a great number, Lord, who have been rulers and kings, people who have been wealthy, and people in between who have come to believe. Would you increase our faith, Father, to pray for and to believe that 
people from all walks of life might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And would you help us, Father, to be faithful, even as Paul and Barnabas were, to be faithful and diligent in seeing to it that those within our own orbit, those who are closest to us, might hear the gospel, might see it lived out in our lives. And may, may all glory be to Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. If you would please stand with me as the worship team comes forward and we will prepare to sing our closing hymn. Uh, Today we'll find it on page 446. We have a story to tell to the nations.